I'm not sure where I'm supposed to stand. Is this okay? Or here? Oh, here. Okay, good. I might actually bring one of these up. I like to have a stand. Um, so it's really fun to be back with you guys again. Thanks for having me back. Um, and I understand that you have been in a series or a focus that's particularly about mission. The church is called to mission, right? So I thought uh, because we didn't read the text and we're talking about Acts 15, a very crucial kind of point in the life of the early church, I thought what we'd do is we'd read it together. So if you can just pop it, begin to pop it up for me, I'll just flip to the whatever the verse, verse, verse is. Yes. So, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you can't be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way. And as they, um, as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders then met, I've added the then, met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them, brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus, that's the Anglican liturgy popping into my head. The grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly then became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Simon Peter, has described to you how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written in Amos. After this, I will return and rebuild God's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of humankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from a long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest time and is read in the synagogues of, on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, 
decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders and believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We've heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. It seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. So I want you to think for a moment um, of the first time you really met Jesus, how you really came to have a life that was centered around Jesus. Just for a moment, think back to that time. I mean, I don't know when it was, whether you grew up knowing Jesus, but think back to the time when you really came to make that faith your own. Now, some of us were fortunate to grow up in a home that loved and believed Jesus, although sometimes that has its own baggage, let's be honest. But then at some point, you really made it your own faith, right? Other of us heard of the good news through friends or other family members or came to know Jesus slowly at different times of your life until you finally surrendered. And some of us were desperate for something different. We recognized that our life wasn't manageable, and we needed divine intervention, and we wanted, uh, and we wanted, or were looking for a purpose in our life, right? For meaningful existence. And we realized that putting our faith in a political system, or trying to be a good person, or following some other humanistic philosophy just wasn't cutting it. It wasn't enough. But then we met Jesus. There is nothing like the joy of others coming to know Jesus, is there? I don't know whether you've experienced that, but when people find out that they are loved and cherished and belong and have a person, Jesus, in their corner and that their life is beginning to change, and that they begin to share what Jesus is doing for them, there's nothing that compares to it, is there? And you hear that today in our text, right? The moment the mission of God is talked about, the moment there are stories about people coming to faith and having their lives transformed through the amazing presence and work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the room lights up, right? Think of verse 3. Let's just go go back to verse 3. As Paul and Barnabas shared as they traveled, Think of how the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were coming to faith. The news filled the believers with joy, right? In the NIV, it has this word gladness, but gladness doesn't quite cut it. Joy has to do with receiving a gift, the gift of grace that just overflows. The wonderful, transforming gift of knowing Jesus. And then in verse 4, the apostles 
And elders are so keen to hear what God has been doing. And then in verse 12, the whole assembly becomes silent as Barnabas and Paul describe all the ways the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, has been at work through signs and wonders among the Gentiles. It's so good to know Jesus. I'm so thankful that I know Jesus. If I hadn't surrendered my life 30 years ago, now, I would never have led a youth group, um, which was a believer's youth group, which was a great training ground for my work amongst addicts in Asia. I would never have lived in various parts of Asia and learned to pray for the sick and experience the transformational presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And I would never have come to Canada and ended up working in the downtown east side, believing that because of everything I had seen and experienced of Jesus, of God at work, that God could transform people in my, my neighborhood. Right? God could make a difference in people's lives. And all of us here are in this room today, not just because we didn't have anything better to do on a Sunday, but because somehow God has drawn us together through the work of the Holy Spirit and blessed us to know Jesus and one another. And we're also here today because we know that the church, the people of God, that's you and me, are called to be missional people in the world who become more like Jesus in word and deed, as Matthew 5 describes in the Sermon on that, who become salt and light, full of flavor and bright drawing and paving the way for people to know Jesus in the world. But let's be honest, when we think about mission, we have mixed feelings about the word. I don't know whether you've talked much about the baggage around the word mission. Some of us probably grew up um, with the sense that mission is what other people do and that we're called, who are called overseas and that our involvement was to support those missionally. I don't know whether that was kind of some of my experience growing up. But the more we've come to understand Jesus, and his invitation to the church, the more we've realized that it can't be limited to those who do mission of the work in these other places, right? So some of us have begun to feel guilty because we have some sense we're supposed to be missional. After all, Jesus commissioned and authorized and sent his followers into the world to baptize and teach people to obey him. But we're not sure what that means for our community or us personally. And for others, we've, be we've begun to understand that mission has at times been done very poorly without much thought for its purpose or impact. And in some cases, it's actually done incredible damage to people and cultures because of the way Jesus has been misrepresented. We think of that with indigenous people, right? We think of the le legacy of residential schools by the church people by people who are supposed to be followers of Jesus, but without any submission to kind of a body of authority or any discernment from the Spirit. Look at the damage that it's done. Actually, May the 5th is Red Dress Day. You probably know this in Canada, right? It's the day when we remember missing and murdered women, indigenous women, because they're predominantly, they're the ones who are go missing. Um, they're the highest number of people who go missing in Canada. And we wear red, and we say, we stand in solidarity with those who've experienced injustice. That's one way we, we build that journey to reconciliation. 
And yet, here we're being invited to join God in the work that God is doing in the world. We're invited to partner with the Holy Spirit in mission in this wonderful and awkward and challenging way because we know, as I've shared, that as we've begun to hear about it in our text today, there's nothing better than someone finding Jesus, right? It's just amazing. So before we go further, let's just remind ourselves of what the mission of the church is. And here is a very helpful quote from theologian and author of the book, The Mission of God. I don't know whether you know him, um, Christopher Wright. Maybe you've heard of him. So here's the, here's the, here's the um, text here. Mission is not ours, mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any missions we get involved in. It's not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission, right? So at the center of, the, of mission is a person, the person of Jesus, our God. And the way we get to know the person and know what we're called to is through the presence and work. Here we are. Or maybe I got too passionate and I've switched it off. That happens sometimes. Yeah? Right? So in many ways, Acts 15, known as the Council of Jerusalem, All good. Yeah, there we go. Now you can hear me loud and clear. Pocket or something. Okay. So let's look at Acts 15, this council of the Jerusalem at a crucial crossroads in the life and growth of the early church, a crucial crossroads in how mission was being determined. And particularly determining who was at the center of mission, what or who was their allegiance to. Is their allegiance to finding God's heart, God being the center of mission, or is it about trying to please everyone in the room? Is it about prioritizing and listening to the Holy Spirit, or is it about holding on to the seeming safety of tradition? Just how on earth do decisions get made because there's no prototype for how decisions are made. They've never had a meeting like this before. They're all kind of learning about it on the fly with the Holy Spirit's guidance, right? The heart of the dispute is really about whether believing in Jesus is enough, right? If you look back at that, if you go back to verse 1 of the text, it, the question is, is Jesus enough? Or are there other things that need to be added on to make the person a true follower of Jesus? That's what we hear today, isn't it? This is what some of the Jewish converts are concerned about, right? But why is this suddenly an issue? Because the early church has been going for a while by now. All of a sudden, there's no longer just Jewish converts to Jesus worshiping. 
right? There are all these other people who have no connectional history of Judaism. So there's a group who are so concerned about this tension and, uh, you know, how, because a lot of um, Gentiles had been very um, positive about um, Judaism and had converted to Judaism. That's how a lot of that happened in the early days of the church. But these gr- this group is so concerned that they've traveled all the way from Judea to Antioch, from the south to the north, or from the north to the south, depending on how you look at it, and have begun to try and convince the Gentiles through teaching that they need to add other things onto their life with Jesus to be saved. Think about it. The early church leaders had inherited a long-standing and deeply held religious system. They, it was part of who they were. It was part of their culture. And they had to discern without a clearly written out foundation the specifics of how the Old Testament system related to Jesus' message of his life, death, and resurrection. So to do this, they had to be willing to listen to each other. They had to be willing to listen to each other's perspectives, to lean in and pay attention to what the Holy Spirit was saying and doing and answer the question, was Jesus enough? This is not the first church that, this is not the first challenge that the early church have had in leadership, right? Is it? This is probably the first big one when they, where they've gathered as a council, but there have other things that have happened. Think about Ananias and Sapphira in, in chapter 5, verse um, 1 to 11, and their selfishness. Or what about the case of the Hellenistic widows? Do you remember that? In chapter 6, where they were being overlooked, and then a whole bunch of leaders got sort of launched um, into sort of being creative and open-ended in their leadership. And then there was the issue of Simon. Do you remember that? Who was a man who, uh, who came to faith in Samaria. I think this is in chapter 7 or 8, chapter 8. But thought he could buy the gift of the Holy Spirit. So their constant challenges are to try and reframe how does um, mission work? How do we care for one another? How do we love for one another? How do we follow Jesus together? But this is one of the biggest. And without any prototype on how to resolve things, It is absolutely amazing that there isn't a schism or a church split. We've known over the centuries that there have been church splits and schisms for things that have been way smaller, right? What's at stake here is the way of salvation, isn't it? The gospel. The very foundation of the Christian faith is being challenged. What's at stake here is answering the question, is Jesus enough? So what are we to make of all this as it relates to mission? And I think what we learn is a few things that I'm going to sort of extrapolate a little bit more. Creating a culture of listening and discernment really matters. Creating a culture of listening and discernment really matters. It's, it, it matters because it means listening to people's hearts and motivations rather than making quick judgments. That's what listening means. And listening to those who are trusted and proven godly leaders. That's what it means to create a culture of listening and discernment. And listening to stories of what God is doing in people's lives. This is what it means to create the culture of listening and discernment. And listening in particular to the Holy Spirit that backs up what we know of God's gospel story in the text. This is what it means to be a culture of listening and discernment as it pertains to mission. 
So how do we see this unfold in the story here? The first thing to know is that even though there was a big disagreement, rather than going their separate ways, there was a desire to seek wisdom from the apostles and elders, that's verse 2, and come to some decision. There was openness to hear one another, right? There was a, dis- there was a culture of openness. And you've got to know that if there's a culture of openness, it's because they're really pressing into what the Holy Spirit wants and what Jesus wants. And Paul and Barnabas, with others, are appointed as representatives. So you get the sense that there's great trust that God would do something with them and that God would bring, a, bring, a, bring about a right result. There's no hint of hostility, is there? Notice that when Paul and Barnabas arrive in Jerusalem to be part of the discussion, this is in verse 4, they're welcomed and people are really open to hear all that God has been doing. God, again, was the feature of the stories they shared. Jesus was the center. Notice what kind of atmosphere and culture that was created to approach this challenging and sensitive topic. Right? If we look at verses 6 and 7, we see that both sides listened to one another and were given space to share. It wasn't argumentative or combative. In fact, the Greek word here in verse 7 is this word that means they took time to speak, to seek, to understand, to inquire, to investigate, to question. There was lots of invitation questions. That's a lot about what it means to listen. It's not about pushing your opinion. It's about questions that invite a response, right? Questions that invite curiosity. Then Peter speaks. Now, why would Peter be listened to? Peter, we know from his um, from the story of, of him in the Gospels, has this single-minded devotion to Jesus. And he was recognized as having authority and leadership in the life of the early church. He was also known as someone who had had difficulty with this very issue, right? With a question of, was Jesus enough? He had his own personal journey with understanding how the Gentiles would receive the gospel. If you will remember from Galatians 2, it tells the story of how Peter and Barnabas were, um, you know, that they, they had begun eating with the Gentiles, with the uncircumcised, and when, and when they do that, you're supposed to get become unclean, right? But then there was pressure from the Jewish Christians to separate themselves, and so they began to separate themselves. Oh, my goodness. And then Paul took it upon himself to confront them and say, what are you doing? This is craziness. We're not supposed to be separate. We're supposed to be united, right? Then we know earlier in Acts, I think it's Acts 10, that Peter had this vision that began to change his mind and heart from the Holy Spirit, right, of this sheep. You can look back in the text. But what it meant is that he was willing to go to Cornelius and share the gospel with him. And the sign that the gospel had been received was that the Holy Spirit fell and came on the Gentiles as it had done on the Jews so that there could be no dispute that God was at work. So we find Peter and the the people listening, knowing this history as being really important. He, he draws from his experiences and what he senses from the Holy Spirit, you know, in verses 6 to 11, and acknowledges that the Holy Spirit has made it clear that the good news of Jesus was for everyone and for the Gentiles. 
And the big sign of their partnership with God was the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, right? A clear indication, Peter says, that God's grace had saved them and not the law, the gift of grace that brings joy, right? Again, a culture of listening and discernment means that there is openness to listening to people's hearts and motivations rather than making quick judgments, listening to those who are trusted and proven godly leaders, and listening to stories of what God is doing in people's lives, listening to the Holy Spirit that backs up what we know of God's gospel story. Next, the council hear from Barnabas and Paul. And notice what happens. I've mentioned it earlier. Verse 12 tells us that the whole assembly became silent and listened. Why? Because they were sharing amazing stories of what God has been doing within the Gentiles that witnessed to the grace that Peter had been talking about and the presence of the Holy Spirit that Peter had been talking about that had powerfully worked in their lives to bring transformation. There's room made to listen to stories of what God is doing in people's lives. There's room to listen to the Holy Spirit in what the Holy Spirit is doing in people's lives. And why would they listen to James? James, as we know, is the brother of Jesus. He hadn't believed in Jesus when Jesus had been on earth, but when Jesus had resurrected, he had come to faith in believing that his half-brother was God, which would be a crazy thing, right, if we think about it. History tells us that he was a gifted and humble leader who was able to hold the utmost respect for all factions of the church. Interesting, right? He was known as James the Just. Does anybody remember that? Known as James the Just. And he was also known as Old Camel Knees because he prayed so long that he wore holes in his robe and, and calluses developed on his knees. He was a man of tremendous integrity, and he was a known leader in the church. And he summarizes now, after listening to the heart and mind of the Spirit and all that's been shared, and quotes from their text from the prophet Isaiah, prophet Amos, reminding those listening that it was God who chose the people to be his name. He chose the Gentiles, and that they were always had been very much in God's heart and plan of inclusion. So his discernment with the Holy Spirit is that Jesus is enough and that the Gentiles are not required to convert to Judaism after they are already saved by Jesus. And he adds these two interesting instructions, doesn't he? He says, verse 19, he in essence agrees with everything that's, that's been shared, particularly by Paul, Peter, Paul, and Barnabas. Um, and he said, recommends that a letter's written. And then he recommends these curious things in the text, which sound legal, like legalism, right? But they're not. He recommends wisely that the Gentile believers exercise their love towards their brothers, their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, by avoiding the main areas in which pagan culture, particularly pagan temples and the practices that went on there would give offense to the Jews. So it's going to cost them to put aside some of the things that they feel fine with doing to make room for their Jewish brothers and sisters um, and not make them too uncomfortable. A culture of listening and discernment means that there is openness to listen to people's hearts, 
and motivations rather than making quick judgments and to find ways to um, give honor to one another, to give space to one another, to listen to those who are trusted and proven godly leaders, to listen to stories of what God is doing, people's life, to listen to the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit backs up in the text and the Word of God. And finally, this letter is sent by these trusted individuals because they had people who would sometimes write letters and go and give, like, fa it would be the equivalent of fake news, guys. There would be fake news people who would do, can you believe that? Back in the day, there was fake news. But th so, they th so they had to be these trusted and, um, you know, chosen people who could give a report. And we know from the rest of the story of Acts that this launched the church, didn't it? That the church began to go all over the world and so many people came to Jesus so that we too know Jesus right now. So what might we learn from this and what might apply today? Like I've said so many times, if you're not getting the point, creating a culture of listening and discernment really matters. And it requires work. It requires work. What we see from the text is that not only, um, it not only clarifies the core of the church to mission and the truth that Jesus is always enough, but it builds unity by creating space for every voice to be heard, right? And for particular voices to be listened to and trust to develop so that the Holy Spirit is able to lead them to a collective sense of unity that comes from knowing God is at work and what God and the Holy Spirit is doing in community. Do you think everybody agreed with the decision? Probably not. But they were willing to trust that the Holy Spirit was at work and they had a sense that it was good to them and the Holy Spirit. How might we find ways to be open and see differences of opinion, not as obstacles, but as opportunities for deeper understanding with hearts of grace and trust? And as a church, we're particularly good at community, aren't we? All churches are. At, at, at creating um, uh, you know, places for us to grow in love for one another. But how might we move beyond the doors of the church and our own community and be invitational and missional in the places in our work, in our school, in the places we find ourselves in? How might we find ways to lean in and listen to the Holy Spirit, especially in regards to mission? Yes, God is, the Holy Spirit is always at work, particularly in regard to mission, too often we rush into a plan for outreach and then begin praying that God would bless it <laughs> or we have a good idea. It's so much easier to come up with a program, isn't it, than let the Holy Spirit lead us. You know, in the life of the early church, there's a book by Alan Crider, um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, and he talks about the history of the church and how it grew by waiting and listening on the Spirit. There wasn't a strategy they basically just hung out with the Holy Spirit and listened and waited on the Spirit for direction. So we need to learn to practice that. How might we find ways to hear one another's stories, to give space to stories of transformation? It could be answers to prayer. It could be people wanting to step out towards faith. We start by asking the Holy Spirit to show us how to take risks and move out of our comfort zone. And this will inspire and encourage faith in what God is already doing around you. This will inspire and encourage faith everywhere. You know, at Strathcona, we've had a practice of trying to share God's stories every week. Sometimes it's a total bomb. No one has anything to say. 
But lots of times, God is doing something. And it just encourages, it might be something small, it might be an answer to prayer, it might be a, a, a meeting that they've had with a neighbor, and those are things we can join our hearts in praying. That has really built our faith and made us much more courageous as a community in our neighborhood and around the place. You know, people have, people have, uh, have started to be curious about the ways that God moves. On Easter Sunday, we, we have at least two other people who teach or share about what the resurrection life of Jesus has, how that's affected them, how that's impacted them. They're usually people who are new believers or people who are kind of on the margins of our church. And it's amazing when they describe the reconciliation, the power of God in their lives. Again, it's faith building and encourage us to be missional. And how might we find ways to examine humbly um, where we have become legalistic? Because all of us folks, all churches have a propensity towards that. Because when we do this, when we examine our motives and the way we do things, it can help ensure that we don't become legalistic about who we think is in and who's not, right? We will need to be prepared to be open to people who might behave differently and think differently than us. People who come from different cultural backgrounds, and we're going to have to allow the Holy Spirit to help them navigate what it means. I remember in Hong Kong, um, when... Um, families came to baptisms of guys who were coming off drugs, you know, powerfully. Many of them would come to faith at the baptism. They would just be, the, the, the presence of the Spirit would be there. And I remember a number of times, family members would come up to us and say, hey, I need to get rid of all my idols. No one told them to do that. No one asked them. But they knew instinctively that if they were going to surrender their life to Jesus, they knew who'd they got a sense of who Jesus was. Jesus will want their all. But then there were others, families, who it took a bit of a journey. So we're going to have to give space and room for that kind of lumpy, bumpy journey of faith and transformation. So what's the invitation? The real invitation is to remember that Jesus is always in us. Acts 15 um, it, it describes and encourages and clearly articulates that it's not about tradition versus innovation. It's about the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant promise of the Messiah, who from the very beginning was not just um, for one people group, but for people everywhere. Jesus must be the center of mission. It's God's mission, right? And if we take all of Jesus's words and actions into account, we see that Jesus is the embodiment of mission, isn't he? Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, all of those who were sent before him, the characters, the stories, all of it points to him as God and the kingdom of God embodied. Everything converges in the person of Jesus Christ, the missional God come down to be with us, which is why Jesus in, is described in John 1 as the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling in us. And it's as we look at Jesus and direct people to look at Jesus, that the Holy Spirit does the work of drawing people to Jesus. We think so often that it's a lot of hard work for us. It's not. It's just about opening our lives and our homes and our stories and letting Jesus do the work. That's a lot of what it is, folks. And let's be excited about what God is inviting us into because there's nothing like the good news of people coming into the kingdom, of people coming to faith in Jesus. Amen? Right? So let me just pray for us. 
Jesus, I want to thank you so much for the Lord's Love Church here and for their desire um, to kind of wrestle with what it means to be a missional community, what it means for the church to engage in your mission, God. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the center of mission. So we pray, we ask God that you'll create curiosity in people's hearts to really listen to one another, to really listen to your spirit and to see what you're inviting them into. And I just bless the work here in Jesus' name. Amen.